It's Thursday, September 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump announced that he has selected the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs, Robert O'Brien, to be the new National Security Advisor. O'Brien will be the fourth person to hold the job in Trump's first term. The president thinks that he will be a good pick because he has been successful at getting hostages released from abroad. Elena Treen, reporter for Axios, joins us for what to know about Trump's new pick. Next, a company called Digital Recognition Network has built a private, nationwide surveillance database that could potentially track the movements of car owners over long periods of time. This network is built on the backs of repo men equipped with cameras that scan the license plates of every car they drive by and then add it to a searchable database accessible to private investigators, repo agents, and insurance companies. Joseph Cox, senior writer at Vice's Motherboard, joins us to talk about DRN and how well it works. Vice was able to track someone using this surveillance tool. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. He's worked with me for quite a while now on hostages, and we've had a tremendous track record with respect to hostages. A lot of people that I respect rated him as their absolute number one choice. So, you know, I think we have a very good chemistry together, and I think we're going to have a great relationship. Uh, He is a very talented man. Joining us now is Elena Treen, White House reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Elena. Thanks so much for having me. President Trump has picked his fourth national security advisor. He he has announced that special presidential envoy for hostage affairs, Robert O'Brien, will be the new national security advisor. Elena, tell us what we know about Robert O'Brien. Robert O'Brien has been working underneath Secretary of State Mike Pompeo as the administration's hostage negotiator for some time now. And this is key just to know his relationship with the Secretary of State, given that the president leaned heavily on Mike Pompeo during this process. A lot of people I've spoken with have noted that O'Brien is someone who looks the part, something that's definitely important to this president. But also, he is seen as a winner in the president's eyes, given he's been super successful in getting a lot of hostages out of pretty precarious situations during the course of the administration. And he was a name that has been floated over the past week since the president had announced that Ambassador John Bolton was leaving. Do we know of any hostages specifically that Robert O'Brien helped set free? So he did in a series of places like in Libya and other places within the Middle East and Afghanistan. But one thing that's actually interesting, not as much of a hostage situation, but he did help get ASAP Rocky out of Sweden. The president had asked him to help him with that situation, which is a bit of an odd job for a hostage negotiator. (laughs) But this is a big deal, especially in the media with ASAP Rocky, given celebrities like Kanye West and Kim Kardashian had kind of asked the president if he would help with that. And so O'Brien was tasked with helping return that rapper home. He was successful in doing that as well. You mentioned that O'Brien had worked pretty closely with Mike Pompeo, and the president really has really found a strong ally in Mike Pompeo. Obviously, there was differences between the president and John Bolton. Bringing Robert O'Brien in now might seem like a better fit. I think Robert O'Brien authored a book, which was a collection of essays called While America Slept, 
This was published in 2016, and it was a bunch of different things about foreign policy. And back then, he said that continuing President Obama's lead from behind foreign policy and sequester-based national security approach was wrong, and we need to return to President Reagan's leader of the free world foreign policy and peace through strength. What kind of things can we expect from Robert O'Brien on this front? So he's an interesting person um, because he has worked with both someone like John Bolton in the past when he was working for the United Nations. And he's also, like I said, been very close with Mike Pompeo. And again, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Ambassador Bolton didn't really agree on a lot of these terms. John Bolton was seen as someone who was much more hawkish, kind of seen as like a warmonger among many people within the administration, part of the reason that he did end up clashing with the president in the end. Whereas the other side is someone like Pompeo, who kind of tries to see both sides to different foreign situations. One thing that a lot of White House officials will frequently tell me was that the president liked to refer to John Bolton as like the bad guy in the room. So as I've talked to people today about where O'Brien will fit into that, will he be more like Bolton or will he be more like Pompeo? People expect him to be less hawkish than Bolton, less of that bad guy alternative that the president likes to have as a foil, but he'll probably be more hawkish than someone like Pompeo, kind of more of a team player, some of the words that came up in uh, conversations with folks I chatted with today. There's a lot of situations going on between the U.S. and various different countries, Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, Afghanistan. There's a lot of stuff to handle. So mm-hmm. Robert O'Brien comes in with a full slate of things to work on. Probably the most imminent thing right now is the situation with Iran and what's going on with mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia. Has there been any indication on which way he leans there? I think that's still unclear. Remember, he is a hostage or he was a hostage negotiator for the administration. So not someone who would initially really handle matters like this. And that's definitely one concern that a lot of folks have is, is he really experienced enough for a role like this? But the president is really the one making the calls here. The president, the one who's leading, he likes to have a lot of feedback from a lot of different voices in the room. But at the end of the day, he will be the one who leads the charge. So I think when looking at different situations, like the one with what, what we'll do with North Korea or what will happen with Iran, especially in light of the attack on the Saudi oil fields, everyone is really looking to the president. And that's always been the way. Um, in many ways, the president is really his own foreign policy advisor, his own communications director. And, and I think that will continue with O'Brien in this role. Has there been any reaction so far on Capitol Hill or anywhere else uh, to Robert O'Brien being the new national security advisor? From a lot of folks that I've spoken with um, on the Hill, people are really excited that there is somebody in here immediately. And I think the big relief here is that they know you need to have a national security advisor working for the president at this very sensitive time with a lot of different foreign powers, issues with different foreign powers playing out um, at the same time. Someone like John Bolton did clash with a lot of people and a lot of people did not like the way that the advice that he was giving the president thought that he, a lot of folks, especially Democrats, of course, thought that he was someone who was too willing to go to war with Iran, too willing to create conflict where negotiations and communications may have been a better option. And so I think there's some more easiness knowing that he's no longer in that role and that hopefully they're hoping that O'Brien might be a more reasonable voice. And again, kind of that team player language that I mentioned earlier. Elena Treen, White House reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. But from everything that we can tell, it is nationwide 
uh, or nearly in every state. Of course, it then depends, you know, whether a repo man has actually driven past that area. If you're in a city, it's going to be a lot more dense with a lot more cameras. If you're in the middle of nowhere, maybe your vehicle hasn't been caught. Joining us now is Joseph Cox, senior writer at Vice's Motherboard. Thanks for joining us, Joseph. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about an interesting company and tool. It's called DRN, Digital Recognition Network. And what this company and this tool is, is it's basically a nationwide surveillance database that could potentially track people and the movements of car owners over long periods of time. It's interesting the way this whole thing has been built through repo men, really, and these cameras that this company has given them, and they track license plates, they photograph license plates, it goes into this database, and anybody with access to this tool can really follow the movements of these license plates of these cars pretty easily. Tell us a little bit more about Digital Recognition Network, uh, Joseph. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you summed it up really well. And I would just stress again that this is not a database created by government, although law enforcement can also pay for access as well. It is, as you say, created entirely by a private company. And they um, sell or give these cameras to repo men who drive around and they sort of simultaneously benefit from the database, which is that if they pass a vehicle and the system says, hey, that, that vehicle is marked repossession, you can go get it. So they get that benefit as well. But as they drive around, it scans, it continually updates the database sort of simultaneously. Uh, and even though repo men are the ones who are you know, primarily building this database, they're certainly not the only ones using it. It's also accessible by insurance firms, and in the case of my source, who looked up a plate for us, they were a private investigator. And they could use that data for everything from tracking, you know, a spouse that someone suspects of cheating, right up to sort of repossessing a car, something like that. There's a wide spectrum of use and potentially abuse uh, of this data. Right. Yeah, these stories are always very interesting to me. You know, we all we see a lot of stuff in TV and movies, and you just kind of naturally think this stuff is widely available and then you read a story like this and you're like, wow, that stuff actually is true. So that's why these things are always mm. interesting to me. We did an interview previously on the podcast with a skip tracer and we were asking her, hey, you know, some of the methods that you use to track people down. And for obvious reasons, she didn't want to reveal any trade secrets or anything. But then I read this article and I was like, well, this might be exactly one of the types of tools that she's using. So you did get in touch with somebody who helped you use this service and look up a license plate. How did that whole thing play out? Yeah, so we've been covering sort of um, sort of similar to what you touched on then, the tools that skip tracers or bail bondsmen, private investigators or bounty hunters. Of course, they're not all one and the same thing, but they do often make use of the same sort of tools. Uh, previously, we did um, an investigation on where you could track cell phone tracking data. Uh, as in the location of someone's phone and bounty hunters were doing that. After that sort of reporting, more people reached out and eventually a private investigator with access to this DRN system got in touch. And then, of course, I wanted to verify that the um, system worked as advertised and then that's how we devised this sort of test. Because, I mean, to be clear, DRN has been around for, you know, around 10 years now. It is not a new system. It has been building up over that time. It's around 9 billion scans now. But to try and give the readers a sense, sort of a more tangible, concrete sense of what this tool actually is, we thought we would 
actually use it. So we gave a license plate to the private investigator who looked it up, and then they did see that, well, the person's car is parked here, then it's over here, now it's in a different state. And then I gave that information to um, the person who gave us consent to be tracked, and they gave us a bit of context, like, oh, yeah, that's that photo is outside my house. Uh, that is when a member of the family drove to go see someone else in a different state. So it is possible to track wow. people, as you say, over a long period of time and in potentially um, sensitive situations. I mean, throwing back to an older case from years and years ago now, but a police officer was using similar technology to sort of uh, surveil and catalogue people who were driving and parking outside a gate and then trying to extort them. That's a long time ago, but this is the similar sort of technology uh, today that could be used for that as well. So how much does this cost? The DRN, it seems, charges uh, $20 to look up a license plate. That's not very expensive at all. Right, yeah, it is relatively cheap. Once you get access um, by being a Reaper man or whatever, it's $20 for a lookup and then $70 for a so-called live alert. You know, you'll you'll give it a plate that you want to have constant um, information on, and then whenever the system spots it, it will um, send you an email or some sort of notification. So once you do get in, as it seems to be with a lot of these skip tracing or private investigator tools, once you're inside, it is pretty cheap. Um, to do these lookups. Because, of course, for this community, and especially the bail bondsman ones, let's say there's a bail for 10 grand, they don't want to spend thousands of dollars on this tool. And because this system has been built at such scale, companies like DRN can afford to offer this sort of information at a relatively cheap price. So how wide is the DRN reach? Obviously, the scans can happen throughout the country. Do they have these cameras set up with repo men in every state, pretty much? Yeah, so I won't be super specific on where we did the test and what states or what cities, just to protect you know, individuals' privacy there. But in our tests, it was um, various states uh, across the country, and I was also sent the results of a scan uh, in a large metropolitan city that was a, like, on a much more granular uh, level. Uh, sort of the other way to go about it, I guess, is look at the states that have pushed back against it with legislation. Uh, there was you know, one in Utah, but then DRM pushed to get back against that, and that law got um, overturned. But from everything that we can tell, it is nationwide, uh, or nearly in every state. Of course, it then depends you know, whether a repo man has actually driven past that area. If you're in a city, it's going to be a lot more dense with a lot more cameras. If you're in the middle of nowhere, maybe your vehicle hasn't been caught. But we phrase it in the article as coast to coast, and that does appear to be accurate, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the legality of all this. Mm. Uh, pictures taken in public are protected by the First Amendment, so theoretically, pretty much everything that they're scanning, all these license plates, since it's happening in public, there's no expectation of privacy. It should all be legal, but let's say in the case of uh, a car that needs to be repossessed, something like that, or you know, they're looking for a bad guy, you know, most people are going to say, okay, that's fine, go ahead and, and do this. But they're picking up license plates of everybody, pretty much they pass by potentially. And members of the public mm -hmm. really would have no way to know whether their data has been collected by this or not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's sort of two points of the legality. First is the collection of the data, which, as you say, it is legal to go take photos in public under the First Amendment. Um, and that is what DRN says it's doing here. It just says, hey, we're just taking photos in public. Uh, but critics of that, like the American Civil Liberties Union, they will say that at a certain point, 
this qualitatively becomes something else. I mean, this is not the same as a PI driving around and, oh, I happen to find someone's car and I'll take a photo of their plate. This is automated at scale. Uh, and it's not really necessarily what the law uh, had in mind when it was written around this sort of public photography. But then you also have the legality of accessing the data. So after it's been collected, then of course someone wants to go use it. If you're a police officer, uh, when it comes to you know search and seizure, you're going to be doing stuff under the Fourth Amendment. Uh, now, some people believe license plate data should have a warrant. Some say it shouldn't. There's still debates around there, but at least there's a debate around it. When it comes to private companies, I mean, the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to them, right? They can do whatever they want with data. It would be a repo man, insurance firm, or in our case, a private investigator. So it's almost there are almost fewer protections around the data when it's being used by DRN and private individuals than it would be if it was uh, law enforcement. According to your article, there's over a thousand accounts that have access to the DRN system. And the company itself has said that sometimes there have been the wrong people getting access. You mentioned the potential for abuse of this system. What did they say with regards to that? So it's not entirely clear how the tool has been abused. Uh, the examples we gave are, you know, maybe a jealous ex trying to spy on their spouse. There could be corporate espionage. There could be lots of different things. Uh, but what they did admit uh, the company in a public uh, council hearing, I believe, was that, yes, people are sharing access. So if I'm a PI and I have a username and a password, apparently people are then giving those to other people who don't actually have authorization to use the tool. Uh, so not only do you have PIs who may be using the software and the system for you know malicious purposes, such as stalking someone or following someone, they can then re-share that access with someone else as well. Uh, and just the issue is sort of what you touched on. We don't know how it's being abused because there's very few avenues to follow up on this. You can't go and, you know, do a freedom of information request to find out if your data was in here because it's a private company. Yeah. Uh, so we know that the access has been abused. We just don't know exactly how yet, but obviously we're hoping to get more information on that. It's like a worse form of sharing your Netflix password with other people. I know that right. the I know that the ACLU has spoken up about this with regards to privacy concerns and you did mention already that some states had pushed back on this but by and large it seems like this company can continue to operate this way without any more supervision. Yeah, uh, especially at the federal level there hasn't been any serious um grappling with this issue. I mean uh, as we do for a lot of our um, surveillance and privacy articles, I did reach out to a, a number of senators. I can't immediately recall which ones off the top of my head, but nobody really commented on it. And I suspect the reason for that is it is quite difficult for lawmakers to talk about this issue when it's not even clear how you would approach it legally, right? Because of the issue that we brought up is like, well, this is technically legal under the First Amendment taking these photos. So sort of what would you change? Uh, and I imagine that's why there isn't so much movement, at least on the federal level, when it comes to this. States are kind of doing it um, by ear on an individual basis. It's just such an interesting look. Little by little with technology advancing, there's more and more surveillance and people are making money off of it. And, and you, you know, you're, you're giving up your data. You don't even know it a lot of times. So it's just an interesting look at to, to what some of these companies are doing. Joseph Cox, Senior Writer at Vice's Motherboard. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Really appreciate it.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>